ministry, and uh, your teachers will meet you down there. All right, as the uh, stampede makes its way out, just invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 12. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, um, Genesis chapter 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. We want you to be looking at Scripture as we walk through it. Um, I have nothing of value to say. This is our authority. Uh, and so if you don't have one of those in your hand, put up your hand, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. And uh, again, we want to work through God's Word together. We want to see the truth of God's Word and, and not uh, the truth of what I have to say, but of what God has already said. So we've been working through uh, the book of, of Genesis, um, such a rich, rich book, and uh, so thankful for all that God has, has revealed and given us in this. Um, two weeks ago, we came to Genesis 12, and, and it's this seismic shift in the flow of the book. Um, chapters 1 to 11, in some ways, are just the setup. Uh, it's just the foundation work the, for the rest of the book. Um, we see the whole world created in perfection. Um, we see God's glory on display in that, the world um, as it should be. Uh, and, and then we see the whole world plunged under the curse of sin and the brokenness that enters in with man's rebellion and all of that as things begin to fall apart. Following closely on the heels of that, though, is God's promise. There will be a rescuer. There is a, a, a child coming, a, a son that will be born uh, of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to undo the, the damage done by sin. God was one day going to return the, the world and return humanity to this Garden of Eden-like state. The, the end is a picture, so the beginning is a picture of the end and where we're going. Um, specifically, he's promising them that he would bring them back to a place of his provision and his peace and his very presence. And so as we See this, this great tension build between the, the, the world created as it was meant to be and the brokenness of sin and then God's promise coming through. But it's not until chapter 12 that we begin to see the fulfillment of that promise. We begin to see God making steps toward bringing it to completion. And so from chapter 12 on, we, we change from, from the picture of the, the whole world to now kind of zooming in to look at one man and his family. And so as we look at this, what we're seeing is the foundation of our faith. We're seeing God laying the foundation stones, beginning the process um, that will eventually lead to Christ. So verses 1 to 3, we saw God's unstoppable promise as God chose Abram, brought him out of Ur. God called him and promised him that he would make him into a, a great nation, that he would bless him. Um, that he would give him this land and that all the nations would be blessed through him. Verses 4 to 9 then, we see Abram's response. We see Abram uh, as the man of faith and, and just this amazing picture. As he hears God's call and he steps out and he follows, he obeys. And, and Abram there becomes the, the father of all the faithful. He is this, this glorious picture, of uh, example of faith itself. He follows God um, out of this world, right? leaving behind his, his family and his, his nation, his home, all that was familiar. Uh, 
Um, he follows God back into this world uh, as God calls him into Canaan. He builds the, the altar there in the middle of this wicked land, in the, in the middle of the pagan worship. He's building an altar to Yahweh. Uh, and then he's following God beyond this world. He sees God's promises from a distance. He sees that there's, there's more than this earthly existence as he lives his life as a, a sojourner, a wanderer in this world. So this, this beautiful example of faith as we've considered Abram, and, and we're inspired. And we say, wow, that's, that's what faith in God looks like. That's what I want to be like. That, that's what should spur us on to grow. And yet at the same time, it's hard not to look at Abram and to see his boldness and to see his faith and then to look at my own life and think, I don't match up. That's not me. Um, how many times have I failed? There's this great man of faith and, and that can just be a crushing weight. I've not been bold and courageous like Abram. I've been a coward. I've been selfish. I've been so caught up in the things of this world, I didn't even think about God's promises. I just did what made sense to me. I've been so preoccupied here, I've, I've forgotten that there's something beyond this world. Abraham's this great man of faith, and I, I don't match up. God is fulfilling this great rescue plan through faithful Abram, and I'm pretty sure um, that if God had a plan for my life, I've already derailed it. You're feeling that way, as I was to some degree. Um, then, as we look at verses um, 10 to 20 coming forward, um, this is God's kindness to us. This is God's kindness to us. The last two sermons were titled God's Unstoppable Promise and Abram, the Man of Faith. And I'm not sure if this sermon should be titled Abram, the Man of Folly. Uh, or God's unwavering faithfulness. And so I just crammed them both in there. Um, it's shocking. It's shocking to read, but it shouldn't be, because we should be familiar with this in our own lives. Abram goes directly from the, the majestic mountaintop of faith, this, this great climactic moment of obeying the Lord and being faithful, directly down into the dark, muddy valley of doubt and disobedience. And yet even there, even in his disobedience, we see God's unwavering faithfulness through it all. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, so look with me, Genesis chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life will be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it is balm for our souls when we are in need of it. That it calls us to the great heights of faith. And that it comforts us in our weakness. God, would you open our eyes this morning to see your truth. Lord, soften our hard hearts. Those who are proud, God, would you, would you graciously crush those that are broken, Lord, would you graciously encourage and bind up their wounds, help them to see the glory of Christ, Lord, that we might uh, stand humbled before you, hearts filled with worship because of your goodness and your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would do it by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. What's interesting is we look at the context of this story the land that God had provided to Abram and later to Israel uh, it is an incredibly fertile land. It's a good land, and yet uh, it's also a land that is very susceptible to drought. That was a big deal in, in the land of Canaan. Um, Egypt nearby has the, has the mighty Nile River and the Delta area. It has this constant supply of water, and so when the, when the rains are sparse, they, they can draw water, they can irrigate. It was, it was continually productive but Israel is in trouble. If the rains don't come, they have nothing. Their fields turn to dust. I've seen farmers more so two weeks ago and last week driving their tractors, and there's just the, you watch all their topsoil is just moving over to the neighbors. That, that's Israel um, regularly. They have no water supply. And so God intentionally placed them in a land where they would be constantly dependent on him. Sure enough, not long after Abram's obedience in Canaan, um, the Lord begins to test his faith. In some ways, this is contrary to what we often expect, right? Abram showed great faith, and, and, and so we look for, for God's blessing to follow. We expect kind of clear skies and, and smooth sailing ahead. The reality is faith is so often followed by famine. The Lord tests his children. We walk in faith and, and he allows pressure and stress. He allows trials and hardships to come into our lives, to, to grow our faith, to test our faith. Sadly, what we see is we watch the Lord testing Abram here in, in verses 10 to 12. Um, we see Abram's fear. That's what comes to the surface as the Lord tests him. We see Abram's fear. Abram is, is assessing the danger of the famine. He's looking at where things are going, and he does not appear to trust the Lord. 
He does not appear to trust in God, even really to, to take that into consideration. Uh, he simply acts according to his own human wisdom. He packs up his family and all his possessions, and he heads down into Egypt. Now, later in Scripture, as we move through um, trusting in Egypt, going to Egypt for refuge becomes a significant thing, something God expressly forbids in a number of cases. Um, but there's no reason at this point to think that the act of going to Egypt was, was sinful in itself. It's not necessarily disobedience to God as much as he's just forgetting God. He's just not considering that. He's just looking at the options and doing what he thinks is best. When he gets there, is where it becomes clearly problematic. He's already kind of forgetting God. Now he gets to the border of Egypt and he looks at his wife and he realizes we have a problem. Because like so many of us, Abram married up. He's got this gorgeous girl on his arms and, uh, and, and this is going to be a problem. She's very beautiful and Abram's afraid. If they see her and they know that she is my wife, they're going to want to make her single again. And there's just one way to do that. They're going to kill me so that they can have her. And so in fear, uh, Abram comes up with a plan. This great man of faith, the man who left behind his country and, and his family to follow the Lord to a, to a land that he didn't even know where he was going, the man who built an altar to Yahweh right in the middle of the Canaanite worship, verses later, is cowardly telling his wife, why don't you lie and that will protect me? Tell them you're my sister and, and, then, and then they'll treat me better. This is a good plan. The logic behind Abram's plan uh, is that in the absence of Sarai's father, an older brother would become the one responsible for her. And so he would become the one um, with whom they would negotiate uh, in, in order to take Sarai as their bride. And he would be the one who would be able to approve or reject a marriage. And so now, instead of a foe um, to try to get this woman, he becomes the gateway. And, and so presumably, in Abram's mind, uh, he's thinking, I'll be able to delay, I'll be able to put off, I'll be able to decline, and, and if it need be, we'll have time to escape. This is not a good look for Abram. This is not a good moment for him. He's taken his eyes off the Lord, off of God's promises. He's not walking by faith. He, he, is, he is ruled by fear. You know what the most common command is in Scripture? You'd think it might be, you know, love the Lord your God, or love one another, or maybe be holy as I am holy. It's not one of those. The most often repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Fear not. Raymond Presson writes this. The most repeated command in Scripture is fear not. It appears 365 times, one for each day of the year. And it's usually followed by, for I am with you. God would have us understand that factoring in his presence always changes the equation. I love that. Factoring in his presence always changes the equation. And that is exactly what Abram does not do. He doesn't look to the Lord. He doesn't trust God in the trial. He, he doesn't think, okay, Lord, you're going to have to protect me through this. You're going to have to provide some way. 
Now he fixates on the situation around him. He fixates on the problem in front of him instead of the God who is over him. And he tries to solve it by his own ingenuity, even by sin. And I hate to say it, but I, I don't know that I can count the number of times that I've been in his shoes right there. I don't know if any of you have been there with me. Problem presents itself. Trials arise and I fret and I toil and I worry and I lose sleep and I get frustrated and eventually I begin to devise an action plan of how I'm going to solve this and what I don't do is pray. What I don't do is stop and consider, where's the Lord in this? What I don't do is stop and ask, why is God allowing this? Why might he have brought me to this place? What's he trying to teach me? How can I grow in faith as I trust the Lord in this? Most importantly, I don't stop and ask, God, how would you have me respond? It's so easy to just get caught up in what is pressing and, and present. And Lord, I'll, we'll talk later. I've got, I've got something I've got to take care of. I don't have time to pray right now. I've got a problem. How foolish we are. So we don't respond out of faith. We respond out of fear. And just like Abram, um, my fear so often leads to folly. And, and that's what we see next. Verses 14 to 16, we see uh, Abram's folly. Have a look at the text there with me, starting verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram falls so quickly from faith into fear, and Abram's fear just leads to folly. It's sin, and it doesn't work. He, he follows through in this plan. He goes into Egypt under this guise of, of just brother and sister traveling together. And again, sadly, there is just so much here that I can identify with. Abram's sin uh, is self-deceiving. I'm good at this one. I don't know about you. I have a gift here. Um, my wife has graciously gotten very adept at pointing this out in my heart. Um, and uh, I praise the Lord for that afterwards. <laughs> um, Self-deceiving. According to Genesis 20, 12, um, there's some truth here. Uh, Sarai actually is Abram's sister in a sense. She's the, the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. So she's his half-sister. Marriage is happened that way in those days. It's not a huge thing. Um, but, but so Abram uses that to justify it. He's making sense of this in his own head. He's, he's trying to deceive his own conscience. I told the truth, just not all the truth, but it's true. He's justifying in his own mind. He's trying to pacify his own conscience. He's deceiving himself. Abram's sin is self-deceiving. Abram's sin is self-serving. He's willing to, to put his wife into harm's way. You sin. He's pressuring her into disobeying the Lord. You lie. You take the risk. And that will be to my benefit. That'll work out better for me. The husband is to lay down his life for his wife. And here's Abram who's pretty quick to lay down his wife for his life. Fear. 
fear and sin. We don't see people around us. We just see ourselves isolated. It's my problem. And if I need to put someone else out of the way or into harm's way to solve this, I'll do it. It's self-deceiving, it's self-serving, and it's self-gratifying. If you watch the, the text, in one way, it worked. Abram's plan, worldly speaking, was a good one. This was a smart lie to tell. Paid off. First off, they didn't kill him, so that's a really good start. He was treated very well for the sake of Sarai. Verse 16 is quite impressive. Sheep, oxen, that's a general measure of wealth. Donkeys, servants, of great value. Um, female donkeys, it suggested that female donkeys were particularly prized. Um, the, the wealthy, the rich, would ride on female donkeys because that was the least likely animal to throw you off. They were a little more passive, a little more quiet. And so the, the female donkey, these are your BMWs and your Lexus. Like, these are the nice cars. But camels, now we're talking. Camels, they, they used to use this text as a proof text of, of why this couldn't be historical because there, there were no domesticated camels back that far. Um, recently, they found, as they so often do, oh, oh, actually, there were some. Um, the Bible was right all along. Who knew? Um, it was, but it was a new thing. They were freshly domesticated, and so a camel uh, was a big deal. It was the, the uber-wealthy who owned a camel or maybe a couple camels. They wouldn't they wouldn't ride them, at least not frequently. It was more just to show off. And so this is maybe your, like, your Lamborghini, your McLaren. Like you just keep that in the, on, on the turntable in your fancy, clean, white garage. Maybe you drive it around a few times a year. Abram's got a few of those now. He's doing well. He gained great wealth. Now, now it is interesting if you watch how this plays out. Um, in the next chapter, Abram and Lot will part ways because of the wealth. Um, chapter 16, um, Abram produces Ishmael, an illegitimate son with Hagar, who is an Egyptian servant. Where did, where did she come? Maybe this wealth doesn't actually play out too well for him into the future. Um, and so in one sense, it was self-gratifying, and yet this whole situation is, is out of control now. It's out of control. Abram assumed that he would be able to protect his wife, that, that, that he would be able to negotiate or decline um, the, those who pursued her. What he didn't account for is Pharaoh himself. Th this, this escalated real fast. And now he's in trouble. There's no negotiating with Pharaoh. Pharaoh likes what he sees and Pharaoh takes what he wants. There's no turning Pharaoh down. It's a prime example we so often say to our kids and maybe even now and again to one another. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, cost you more than you wanted to pay. Right? It, it begins small and it just escalates. That's what it does. It begins as this cute little pet that's soft and cuddly, this little lie, and I can control it, and I'll keep it here, and, and, and it'll be okay. And, and uh, overnight, it grows into this monster, and suddenly we're giving ourselves up, trying to feed it and run from it. Um, Abram thought this little half-truth, this might lead to some awkward conversations. Um, this might lead to some, some, some disappointed suitors. But, but he seemed to believe that he was going to get away with it. He's going to be able to control the situation. I've, I've got it. And, and all of a sudden, um, this is way out of his control. 
Pharaoh has taken Sarai into his house. The word taken there is used often of taking a wife. Um, She is in Pharaoh's harem now. Just imagine that moment when Pharaoh showed up, or probably Pharaoh's servants, and and he's thinking, ah, do, do I stick to the, do I stick to my lie if I tell the truth now? Are they going to kill me? Is this war? And cowardly, he does nothing. He lets her go. Just think about the potential impact here. God had promised Abram uh, essentially three things: to give him the land, to give him the offspring, and that through him all the nations will be blessed. And right here, through one lie, all three of those are put in jeopardy. He's, he's made a mess of all of it. Abram is working in his own wisdom, and he has now jeopardized um, all of God's promised blessings to him, or so it would seem from a human perspective. What does he do now? Like, what do you do when your wife is in Pharaoh's harem, and God has promised to do these great things? You, you don't go and nicely ask for your wife back. Um, maybe try some kind of covert rescue operation through, through the go up against Pharaoh's guards. Not a good move. There's nothing he can do. He, this is hopeless. In his fear, rather than looking to God, he tried to, to devise a plan and he came up with a sinful way and he's caused absolute disaster. Abram, the one whom Paul wrote, Galatians 3, 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, This guy, Father Abraham, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. The man of faith was still also a man of flesh. Directly foolish. In a moment of trial, moment of stress, he fails. He fails. He's overcome by fear. He's led into folly. He reverts back to his old ways, his old wisdom. This is how we used to do it. He distrusted the Lord. He deceived himself. And it looks like he has just derailed God's plan. Ever been there? You ever pause to look at your life and go, oh man, I made a mess. I made a mess. A mess that seems totally unredeemable, unsalvageable. A mess that you've created by your sinful decisions and you start to think, well, God, maybe this is it. Maybe this time I've actually gone too far. Maybe this time I've actually derailed it. My life's just going to be a disaster from here on out. I suspect many, if not all of us, have been right there. And I think that's exactly why the Lord gives us this story. Because Abram the man of faith, was simultaneously a man of folly. And yet right through the middle of his fear and his folly, right through the middle of his sin, runs God's unwavering faithfulness. Look at verses 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
Those first words are so beautiful. But the Lord. Right there. I dare say those are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. That's the story of, of your life and mine. But the Lord. Abram walks in fear and folly. The Lord graciously intervenes. Pharaoh and his entire house are afflicted with what verse 17 calls great plagues. The language is severe. Um, plagues most frequently refers to, to skin disease of some kind, but is often used more, more broadly than that. Um, whatever it was, it's a big deal. Pharaoh and his whole house, they are, they are suffering under some kind of plagues. Most likely Sarai is the one who, who blows the lid off. I know why this is happening. Tells Pharaoh or the, the, the servants there, um, I'm a married woman. More than that, I'm a, a married woman who is protected by God. The text doesn't tell us explicitly whether or not she was kept from uh, adultery uh, with Pharaoh. Many would believe that she is not. They would say the language there, he took her for his wife, is very clear. Um, that in itself, it's not like that would blow up God's plan or promises, but I think as I look at the, the flow of the story, the significance of the plague on Pharaoh and his house, uh, I think it leans toward uh, the Lord completely protecting Sarai, um, that Pharaoh never got that far. But it's interesting, Pharaoh of Egypt now claims the moral high ground uh, over Abram. Pharaoh of Egypt uh, is now scolding God's chosen man. Even the pagan king knows, that's not right. You did me wrong. You lied to me. We're almost led to believe by Pharaoh's words that if, that if Abram had just said, this is my wife, maybe Pharaoh would have even protected him. We don't know. But this Pharaoh takes the high ground, says to Abram, what have you done? Why didn't you tell me? And Abram and Sarai and their household are, are escorted out of the land of Egypt. God entered into Abram's impossible, disastrous mess where there was no way out, and he made a way. He made a way. In spite of Abram's sin and disobedience, God's faithfulness was unwavering. God wasn't surprised by this. This wasn't some shock that all of a sudden, oh no, I had this great plan, it was A, B, and C, and now Abram's gone and done that, now what do I do? No, no. No, no, God's faithfulness was right there. This is no surprise. His promise is unstoppable. He knows all things. He's sovereign over all things. It's interesting, there are, are numerous thematic elements in this story. I just want to start to tie this backwards and forwards as we look at this story in the context of the Bible as a whole. There's a few elements that remind us of Adam and Eve in the garden. It seems intentional. It's Moses writing this. There's a temptation that centers around food, right? There's the, the fruit of the tree or the famine. There's the disastrous results uh, of a husband's poor leadership of his wife. Same language used. Uh, Eve saw and took the fruit. Pharaoh saw and took Sarai. God comes to Abram and asks, what have you done? Pharaoh comes, sorry, God goes to Adam and asks, what have you done? Pharaoh comes to Abram and asks, what have you done? But the difference is in the ending. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent out of the garden under the Lord's curse. 
when Abram and Sarai sin. They're sent out of Egypt, but under God's blessing. Under God's blessing. God is dealing with Abram in a new way, something different than he did with Adam and Eve. There's a new story emerging here, a story of God's promise and God's blessing is working its way out. Even Abram's sin is not outside of God's plan. Even Abram's sin does not threaten God's promise, even God's blessing. Now it's important to take a moment, step back a little further and see what this promise would mean, uh, this this story of the life of Abram and, and, and And what would this would mean to those who are reading it when it was first written? His faithfulness, God's unwavering promise in the face of Abram's folly um, was written first by Moses to the people of Israel. And they were wandering in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years in the Negev because of their sin. And from where had they come? Well, they had just come out of Egypt. Jacob, their father, who is Abram's grandson, was living as a sojourner in the promised land when he was threatened by a famine. Sound familiar? And he went down to Egypt. Just as Sarai, in a sense, became a slave to Pharaoh, the people of Israel become a slave to Pharaoh. Just as the Lord rescued Sarai by sending great plagues on Pharaoh and all his house, the same language is used in Exodus a series of great plagues on Pharaoh rescue the people of God out from Egypt. These are very intentional linguistic parallels as Moses is writing this. Just as Abram and Sarai are sent out of Egypt with great wealth, the Israelites come out of Egypt uh, plundering the Egyptians. And so it was, the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt are now wandering in the desert and they can look back at the story of Abram and have hope. This is the way God works. He's done this story before. Look at this. Is, this is just like us. And God was faithful back then. We sang that this morning. He was faithful then. He'll be faithful now. There's more to come. God is, God is working in the way that he's worked before. He's rescued from Egypt. His faithfulness to Abram never wavered. Abram would still have the promised offspring. Abram would still become a great nation. Abram would still become a blessing to the nations. They could look back in their history and see this this paradigm of God's faithfulness building. This, This is the way that God has worked. They could see that that God had done this in past. And so this, this parallel is this great blessing to Israel in their day. But that paradigm is not complete yet. That's not the end of the story. God would continue to be faithful in the same patterns, bringing about his promise. He would continue to build on that story of of Abram and the story of the Exodus and use that as a backdrop. And as we kind of zoom out a little bit more, many years later, after Israel has been in the promised land for some time and now they're acting, living in sin again, Hosea 11.1, says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Interesting word from Hosea. God called 
Abram. Um, Abram would be one through whom the promise of God would, would one day come. And, and Abram sinned, but God was faithful. Out of Abram would come the nation of Israel. And Israel would be uh, the one through whom God's promise would one day come. And God rescued Israel out of Egypt and and Israel would continue in sin. God called them out of Egypt. They would continue to worship these other false gods. And as you read through Hosea, um, he goes on to say that, that the Lord is going to send the Assyrians to remove them from the promised land because of their disobedience. He's sending them off into exile. And yet even still, God's faithfulness would remain unwavering. God's plan was still moving forward. And Hosea would leave us wondering at that point about the faithfulness of God. How is that going to happen? As you finish the book of Hosea, you're wondering, what does this look like? How can God's faithfulness overcome this sin and rebellion and disobedience? And then seemingly out of nowhere, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, what do we see? We see King Herod killing a bunch of baby boys in Israel, trying to destroy the rescuer that was prophesied. That sounds very reminiscent of Pharaoh in Egypt. The angel tells Joseph, flee. Take your family. Go for refuge. Where? In Egypt. And then Matthew 2.14 makes this incredibly odd statement that so many people wrestle with. How do we understand this? says of Joseph, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now we're going to do some, some biblical theology here. How do we understand that? He quotes Hosea. He says that, that Jesus coming out of Egypt fulfills what the prophet had spoken. But if you go back and read Hosea, he's not prophesying. He's not telling the, this is what's going to happen. He's looking back. He's looking at the past and saying this is what God has done. He's talking about present. Hosea is writing a description of what God has done. So how is it that Jesus coming out of Egypt is fulfilling Hosea 11.1? 1? Well, it's not in the normal sense that we might think of fulfilling a prophecy. Um, the technical term here is typology. Jesus is fulfilling in that he is the completion, he's the, the culmination of what God has been doing through history, fully protecting his promises. It was always about Jesus. God's faithfulness in bringing Abram out of Egypt, his faithfulness in bringing Israel out of Egypt, they, they were living historical pictures of how God would one day ultimately rescue his people in a fuller greater way. They were, they were promises embedded in historical events and people. So this little statement in Matthew 2.15, it doesn't come out of the blue either. It's not a random thing that, that Matthew says. Um, it, it's right at the center of what Matthew's doing through the beginning of his gospel. See if this idea of these patterns building, if this doesn't make a little more sense as you read the book of Matthew. It opens... Chapter 1, verse 1, with the phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? We've heard that constantly through Genesis. These are the generations of, these are the generations of. Matthew is saying, I'm looking back at Genesis here. These are the generations of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a new beginning, a new Genesis. 
There's a new generation, a new beginning to a new humanity that is starting right here. And not only is Jesus rescued from the baby-killing Herod like Moses, that day's rescuer was, mar- was rescued from Pharaoh, but he comes up out of Egypt as Abram did and as Israel did. Directly following that, Jesus goes to uh, Matthew, tells the story of Jesus' baptism, which Scripture elsewhere connects to, or sorry, uh, connects to the, the crossing of the Red Sea, coming through the water. And then he goes where? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Just as Israel came out of Egypt and through the water and into the wilderness, Jesus comes out of Egypt and through the water and into the wilderness. Matthew is retelling the story of Israel. He's playing this pattern out again, but this time playing the role of Israel is Jesus. Significant twist where Adam and Abram and Israel failed to trust the Lord again and again and again. And so it was through them that God would send the one who would rescue from the curse of sin, but they themselves were sinners. And so they couldn't rescue from the curse of sin because they themselves were under the curse of sin. Matthew 3.17, immediately following Jesus' baptism, we read this, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Adam, Abram, Israel, They're each presented as a a son of God through whom God's promises would come. But Jesus is the one that comes. He's the actual son, the actual rescuer. And when Jesus came, he came as the perfect, obedient son. The new Adam, the new man of faith, the the fulfillment of Israel. And even though it was... He was without sin. He would die on the cross. He would take the curse of sin on himself, the wrath of God on himself. And in that moment, God truly and fully rescued his people out from their greatest enemy. He rescued his children, not from from physical slavery in Egypt, but from a much more significant slavery to sin and death. That's where this story has been going from the very beginning. And in that way, Jesus is the fulfillment of Abram and the fulfillment of Israel. Coming up out of Egypt, he's the greater spiritual reality that was always promised by God's physical faithfulness. Right there we see, this is the foundation of God's blessing. This is the, the basis of his kindness toward Abram and toward Israel, his patience to them, even as they rebelled? How could he continue to bear with them, continue to be faithful when they were unfaithful? It's because his faithfulness was never resting on Abram's obedience or on Israel's obedience, but on Christ's obedience. He was always going to be the coming rescuer. It was always rooted in him, looking forward to him. And it's still rooted in him. It's still about him. The Lord calls us to trust in him, to have faith, just like Abram did looking forward to the cross. We're called to have faith looking back to the cross. He calls us to repent of our sin, 
to give up seeking our, our joy and our purpose and meaning in life in this world, to trust in Him. There's no salvation outside of Him. There's no salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, just like Abram, we are weak, and we're frail, and we're fallen. And in one moment, we see ourselves as the man of faith. Oh, God, I'm trusting you, and I'm, I'm just killing it today, and I'm, and I'm humming along, and I'm reading the Word, and I'm abiding in Christ, and this is great. And the next day, we fall flat on our face. I'm just the man of folly. We look back at our lives, and maybe you don't even have to look back very far, and we just see decisions we've made, actions that we've taken. That wasn't rooted in faith. You dummy. Why would you do that? I was rooted in the flesh. I was rooted in fear. Look at the mess that I've made. Maybe some are just foolish decisions. Maybe some are outright sinful decisions. And that's not okay. That doesn't excuse it. We're called to trust the Lord. We're called to to walk in faith. Foolishness and sin have, have consequences in our lives for sure. But for those of us who are in Christ, our salvation... The larger plan of God in our lives, the the goodness, the faithfulness of God, the love of God towards us, it's not based on our obedience. It's not rooted in our faithfulness to Him. It's based in Christ's obedience. It's rooted in His faithfulness to us. It's because of that faithfulness of God firmly rooted in, in the perfect, completed obedience of Christ. We have passages like Romans 8, 28. And we know, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things. He's faithful, no matter what. I mean, your bad decisions, God was working together for your good in Christ Jesus. So yes, repent of sin, trust the Lord, walk by faith, pursue that with all that you are. But even as you do so imperfectly, even as you stumble along the path of faith, even as you look back at the decisions in your life that have have brought you to this place, decisions that you know were were self-deceived and self-serving and self-gratifying, we can humbly look back with grateful confidence that God is in it. God is over even that, even my foolish decisions of my past. His promises won't fail. His promise is unstoppable. His, his, his faithfulness is unwavering. We can say with Paul just a little further down in Romans 8, verse 37. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't think your bad decisions fall into that? You don't think they fall into that massive sweeping scope of all things over which we are more than conquerors because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? For those who are in Christ Jesus, even the face of our, of our fear and our folly, He is faithful. I invite the worship team to join me um, as we prepare um, to close in, in communion together. Communion is just exactly that. It's a declaration of the love of God to us 
in Christ Jesus. As we partake of the, of the bread and the juice, we're saying, it's Christ. We're admitting our fallenness and our folly and our weakness, our sin, and we're saying, God, I needed a rescuer. I needed death in my place, and you were faithful. A statement of hope and our confidence in his kindness and grace towards us. Not in ourselves. doesn't depend on our track record of faith. I know as I was younger in the faith, I would often wrestle, can I take communion because I sinned this week? I have to take communion. I sinned this week. I sinned this morning. I need more grace. I need to know his truth again. I need to rest in what he has done and not in what I have done. And and so along with that, if you're a visitor here with us this morning, we would invite you to partake with us if that's true of you. If you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not repenting of of sin and resting in him, then this would be meaningless. And in fact, uh, scripture even warns it would be dangerous. And even for believers, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, Paul says that some are sick and have even died because they've taken lightly um, the elements of communion. And so 